My name is Alan Smithson, your host for the XR for Business podcast, where we interview industry leaders who are either making or using immersive, virtual, augmented, and mixed reality solutions for business. From marketing and sales, to logistics and training, to design and remote collaboration, learn how the world's largest organizations are implementing an XR for Business strategy and why you should too. Today's guest is Terry Schusler, entrepreneur, technology architect, passionate software designer, writer, speaker, trainer, and all-around awesome guy. As a software innovator, Terry's focus has been making software smarter for users while leveraging technology to enable new forms of communication. During the development of over 200 commercial software products, reaching over 50 million users on desktop, mobile, and tablet devices, Terry has delivered numerous technology innovations, artificial intelligence and consumer products, multimedia, hybrid online offline CD-ROMs, what's a CD-ROM? Interactive multimedia on the internet, real-time character animations, factory-to-consumer personalized plush toy design, just to name a few. A number of his products have been category creators opening up new markets with long-tail monetization opportunities. If you want to learn more about the company that Terry works for, Deutsche Telekom is at telekom.com, T-E-L-E-K-O-M.com. It's with great honor that I welcome Director of Immersive Technology at Deutsche Telekom and founding member of the OpenAR Cloud, Mr. Terry Schusler. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thanks, Alan. Nice to have the opportunity. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's really a pleasure and honor to have you on the show, and I'm just going to dive right in here because I think you know the people listening really want to get an understanding of how this technology can be used for them. So to start it off, what is one of the best XR experiences that you've ever had? Um, one of the best experiences I ever had was actually um, realizing that the technology can be used not just to make people money. Um, to provide education, but to actually save lives, um, that it, that it could really be transformative. So, um, a company which unfortunately is no longer a business, ODG, uh, created a um, uh, an oxygen mask for pilots, uh, which allowed the pilots to operate a plane using augmented reality uh, when the cockpit was full of smoke, and and seeing that product um, developed and come to fruition. Uh, really got me thinking differently about the importance of, of utilizing these types of technologies to increase human safety and save lives, um, as well as provide all the obvious benefits that we're, we're used to. Wow, that is, how do you even, that's a showstopper. You, you literally, you know, uh, I had Mark Sage on the, on the show and he was talking about how firefighters are using this technology, you know, for heads up displays and um, you know, military are using it for being able to see in the dark and creating kind of uh, that that visibility layer. You know, can you maybe talk a bit more about this this mask that can help pilots in a distressed situation like that? Because you know, there's so many ways this technology can be used to save lives. I think we should you know let's dig into that. So, um, ODG co-developed this with uh, I think it was FedEx. Um, FedEx had, um, I think, had two flights um, which had crashed due to cockpit filled um, uh, with smoke um, conditions that prevented the pilots from being able to properly control the plane. Um, and so they they made a decision to look at how they could utilize technology, uh, you know, heads up display technology using AR to 
give pilots the um, visual controls that they need to continue flying a plane, even if such a situation happened. And um, they actually had a, a, little, a live demonstration uh, unit at uh, the Augmented World Exposition last year um, in Santa Clara, uh, where you could try the mask on and actually see what the experience would be like. And it really it got me thinking differently about you know some of the goals that I want to achieve personally with uh, with XR devices and um, how I'd like to you know utilize them for you know and, and the importance of, of the general technical work I, I do in terms of creating low latency experiences and and how they can be used to uh, combine together to, to create better human safety conditions so you know we you, you talked about low latency experiences and in creating this kind of human connection um, or, or human tools that, that we're going to you know, be able to save lives. You know, you work for a telco, and all of the telecommunications companies now are really kind of pushing this 5G wave. So maybe can you, can you speak to how 5G is going to you know, uh, benefit augmented reality, mixed reality, and you know, what are some of these low latency experiences that businesses will start to tap into? Sure. So... I mean, most people see 5G as, um, if you were to ask the average person, what does it mean to them? It's really about bandwidth, um, the speed at which things could be downloaded. Um, and that certainly is, you know, a huge uh, value proposition. Um, but one of the most important things that um, 5G also does is it provides um, a higher reliability of service, um, more consistent availability of service. Um, because of the technology, it's able to support a hundred times more people in the same area, having consistent access to the internet um, in a mobile context and that, or or in a fixed context, and that's really important. Um, for it's interesting that, that we should punctuate that right now, and when, yeah. when you cut out a couple times during this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> technology, we can't wait. Five G, come faster. <laughs> yeah, that that can happen, of course. Um, you know the. Um, it, when you when you go to environments where there's a lot of people at, at one place, uh, you know, a, a coliseum sporting event or uh, a shopping mall or, you know, Coachella. Yeah, exactly, Coachella. Um, then you know, connectivity becomes even more problematic. Um, and certainly, if everybody's trying to you know uplink a live video stream of something that's going on, then it becomes even more uh, overwhelming. And so. Those are contexts in which 5G can provide, uh, you know, value with certain technologies that we're utilizing for mixed reality, where we're taking the camera feed and f feeding it back um, and processing that camera feed to make decisions or provide spatial mapping information, things like that. Then this consistent higher bandwidth connection is important. Um, for people who are listening, you know, why would, you know, let's take it back to basics. Why would uh, a company need some sort of uh, augmented reality where it's capturing the world's data. So, you know, a lot of people think about AR as, you know, I can hold up my phone and see a Pokemon or I can, uh, you know, I can see a, a piece of information overlaid as a digital layer. But most people don't realize that it's the camera that's capturing as much or more data around the world to create this conceptual, um, conceptualized data. And so capturing data and, and uploading it to the cloud is probably as important or more important than the data being driven back to the device. Yeah, and you know, there's technical limitations that we have today with um, the on-device sensors um, that can be um, you know, um, enhanced 
or addressed through uh, cloud-based technologies. So, for example, one um, company that um, is in our incubator, Hubram, is a company called Thousand Realities, and they've developed a purely cloud-based SLAM um, approach um, where they take video stream directly off of a device, run it to the cloud, to our edge compute um, uh, infrastructure, and then process that video to create a feature point cloud um, or to localize a user against one. And that allows um, devices which don't have the compute capabilities today, lightweight um, AR headset devices, um, to have the kind of capability that a higher end device like a HoloLens 2 or a Magic Leap might have, or even better in some cases. Yeah, it's in, interesting. I, I, the Thousand Realities uh, team is doing some amazing stuff. I think they're using the, um, I want to say the Vuzix Blade or something. Um, I mean, they're using you know different hardware devices, but you know let's let's dig into what a you know an actual example of why you would need to map out the world in real time like that. Um, can you think of any you know, real time real business use cases for that? Sure. I mean. You know, um, positionally things change within an environment. You need to be able to um, track objects in real time. So, you know, having the ability um, to perform um, a non-pre-programmed or dynamically um, applied um, enhancement of information overlay on top of real-world objects is is super important um, in tons and tons of um, environments, factories, um, outdoor logistics, um, and 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 so on. And so, uh, you know, think of retail, for example, where everything's moving around. Um, you, uh, if you're trying to look at a, a planogram section of a retail um, space, um, you need to dynamically be able to compute what's there, what's not there, whether things are in the right place. That's going to be a changing context over and over again. Um, and so being able to map that information um, in real time, uh, process that, and then uh, get dynamic overlays on top of that um, is very valuable for those kind of contexts. It's interesting you, you mentioned retail because that's something that we focus very heavily on retail and uh, e-commerce and, you know, kind of general marketing as well. You know, something that happened on the weekend, we, we mentioned Coachella quickly there, but Coachella had, uh, you know, AR navigation at the festival um, this past weekend and, and next weekend as well. And they also had a, an AR stage where you could hold up your phone and see an AR activation. And, you know, you could see the, the NASA space shuttle kind of flying through the Sahara tent, which is pretty awesome. But, you know, they always have these bandwidth issues where, you know, if you get a few hundred people on, on the system running it, it starts to slow down. But if you get, you know, 10,000 people, then it, you know, it grinds to a halt. And, you know, uh, I think, people don't realize fully the limitations of 4G. You know, they think, oh, I can watch a movie on my phone, it's fine. But when you start to get into these real-time computing scenarios like you know, firefighters or police, uh, paramedics, where they need real-time data and it can't, you know, it can't crash or, or lag because there happens to be 10,000 people in the place. That's right. Reliable quality of service is super important. Um, in, in those kind of contexts. And, and that's a big value proposition that 5G puts on the table because it not only provides a higher bandwidth, but it in, ensures um, more spectrum density. So more people in one place aren't going to create this kind of cascading failure problem. Another really key area that ties to both of those is the, the idea of uh, precise positioning. So, you know, today we have um, mostly the use of GPS systems, which are 
you know, uh, highly imprecise in certain contexts and useless at others. Um, you know, GPS is supposed to be accurate to roughly 4.9 meters, but, um, you know, it's not. And so if you're, you know, for example, if you're in downtown San Francisco and you're calling an Uber, you're going to have to manually place on the Uber map, you know, where you are almost every time because it's going to be off by half a block or more um, as to where your real location is. Um, so this kind of um, problem is, is um, going to be exacerbated when we try to get highly accurate um, augmented reality content overlaid on the real world. We need to more accurately know where we are um, outdoors and indoors. And um, we can't afford the, the, the inconsistency, the quality is inconsistency of, of, of positioning. So this is an area that's uh, very actively being researched by us as to how we can layer precise positioning on top of 5G infrastructure so that we can get um, positioning um, accurate to at least a meter indoors and out, and, and ideally a lot less than that, a lot more accurate than that. It's interesting because I've seen some uh, some startups that are working on exactly this, you know, trying to get the, that down to, you know, centimeter accuracy. And, you know, it can be done with beacons, with Bluetooth beacons and that sort of thing, but it's not really practical in large uh, in large facilities and in large public spaces. But what I've seen um, is, is working fairly well now is using kind of landmarks. Uh, so using the visual camera to lock into, so you know, you know, within five meters, you know where you are. Well, based on that, plus the visual marker, you can really narrow that down. Is that something you've seen uh, executed well? Yeah, um, there's a company, for example, called Sturfe, um, S-T-U-R-F-E-E, which has developed an approach using satellite imagery. Um, so you would use your head-worn AR glasses, um, take a quick picture from the camera, um, combine that image along with your um, lat-long information, um, and send that off to their server, and then they're able to process um, sort of looking in a, a radius around where you say you are based on the GPS information. I think they, they do a search around 30 meters. Um, and then they're able to figure out where you are using the image. They're also able to figure out your elevation, um, your azimuth. They can then um, calculate um, a three-dimensional mesh along the surface of the objects that you're looking at in the real world, the sides of buildings. The, the, you know, the street, of course, is the easy one. but but doing against the geometry of the buildings is pretty interesting. And so then you can very quickly do real world, um, outdoor world scale AR kind of stuff, you know, putting signage and maps and things like that on, onto the surface of the, the infrastructure around you. That's, that's interesting. You know, uh, Google, uh, I don't know, about a month ago announced their AR navigation system. Um, you know, it does not have that kind of accuracy. So is this, you know, something that, maybe would be a, a Google acquisition to kind of build into their Google AR maps. You know, I think everything is a potential Google acquisition these days. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you see a lot of roll up in the industry right now, technology roll up between all the players, um, uh, Niantic, you know, Facebook, you know, you, know, you name it. Um, so absolutely, I think um, it's, a, it's an innovative technical approach to use the sort of visual positioning approach to um, things, but it only works in the outdoor context. So, you know, technical uh. problems, different technical solutions. Um, what is very interesting to me for the real world for business use cases, I don't see um, a very good cohesive outdoor indoor solution quite yet. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer that um, cloud-based solutions like that of Thousand Realities will get us closer to that 
um, where we can have one consistent technological approach that we can use to uh, navigate you in world scale AR to a business and then bring you into the business and then give you internal navigation and spatial mapping at the same time. Um, right now it requires two separate solutions. Yeah, it's interesting you say we actually built um, an AR navigation tool um, and it works great outdoors and indoors it works well but the way we did it was you know it was specific for location so you know um, uh, theme parks and, and malls and stuff like that and so what we were using and what we are using is uh, beacons mm -hmm. so when you're outside it uses GPS and when you're inside it it knows where you are sort of in you know GPS and then uses the beacons to kind of triangulate that millimeter accurate precision right but um, yeah there, there's I haven't seen anything that has really you know been able to say hey this is the, the penultimate of this so yeah, I mean, right now there's there's you know there's vendors like uh, 6D.ai which have really tremendously awesome um, spatial mapping tools. Um, they require a lot of on-device horsepower um, to perform their task, and so that you see the sort of um, envelope of what could be in in the future. And as as equipment and devices get more performant, you know that kind of technical um, requirement will become more commonplace available. But, uh, you know, uh, you also see devices like the Magic Leap, which are technically really awesome, but don't work at, in an outdoor context, not just because of the display components, you know, the optics package, but because of the sensors. You can't scan, you know, at scale outdoors with those devices. Yeah, I wonder if you, you could do a combination of, you know, putting AR core and AR kit capabilities mixed with GPS, mixed with, you know, the Magic Leap, to give it kind of that all in one, but I mean, now you're throwing a ton of junk. So really what it comes down to is 5G and cloud computing. Right. You know, like, the, you know, none of these things can really happen without it. Yeah. So part of it is, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing at Deutsche Telekom is really looking at how can we um, enable the, um, the Holy Grail device to exist, which is the sort of really light consumer fashion friendly, um, you know, all day device, right? And the key to that is that we have to reduce battery drain and move all the compute off the device we possibly can. And uh, to do that, we can either tether it to a phone um, or we can put the compute on the internet or we can do both. And so I really think that we're moving to a, to a sort of a mesh computing world where we use all the compute cores, if you will, that are around us in our personal area network of devices. So you've got your your watch with some compute. You've got, you know, your phone with compute. Maybe you have compute on on the headset, and then you've got compute on the network, both on the edge and in the backhaul. And if you mesh all that together, we can start to shift the burden off the top of your head and and onto the network more and more. Um, and that allows these devices to get smaller and lighter and still be very functional, you know, not to have to have all the trade-offs. So you mentioned, for example, the Vuzix Blade, which is, um, it looks like it's a stereographic device, but it's really just for one eye, right? The right eye. Um, it's a great device and it's lightweight and it's relatively inexpensive. Um, but because it takes a lot of trade-offs in terms of its compute capabilities, um, certain business use cases may not be as viable on it. As, as with other devices. When you start to integrate the use of cloud compute and technologies that run on the cloud, especially on edge, um, then you can start to um, offset some of the compute 
reduction that you put on the device with with the network and uh, and it start to enable the device to be more and more capable and even like I said in some cases more capable than devices with the built-in sensor arrays and in the inside out tracking it's interesting uh, one of the showstoppers that I saw at CES this year was uh, the Nreal glasses as uh, a developer from Magic Leap who left right. to start his own glasses and he basically took you know, the, the basics behind delivering kind of three-dimensional AR with one camera using, uh, you know, AR core, I guess, and then run run the computer down to a, you know, like the equivalent of a cell phone pack running Android. And I thought that was a really new, unique way to get some of the weight off the headset. But, you know, what you're saying is that, you know, having the computer, compute power on the glasses and then maybe the, the phone and then cloud and then, you know, basically uh, edge computing all of it together, um, that's going to need some sort of open frameworks and, and kind of collaboration. And, you know, one of the things that you're involved in is OpenAR Cloud. And you want to talk about that and kind of what that means to businesses? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's hard to understate um, how, or overstate, I should say, how important um, having a uh, digital representation of the real world spatially is going to be, you know, what we call the AR cloud. Um, it's going to be the foundation under which we, uh, uh, I'm sorry, on top of which we build tremendous amounts of spatial computing applications. We need to know the details of the geometry of the real world so that we can position things, but we also need to understand it semantically as well, um, what it is, not just where it is and how, what size it is. So um, the OpenAR Cloud Foundation is really focused on looking at different um, categories of use cases um, and creating a sort of open standards that all the industry players can um, engage with so that we have a consistent way that we can utilize these different technical approaches to solving some of these problems. I mentioned, for example, the fact that currently you really have to use you know, different a hybridization of technologies to work indoor and outdoors um, with uh, spatial mapping. Um, what we need, though, is a consistent, uh, as we refer to it as a single index method for being able to say, I need a map based on this, where I am now, um, or where I need the map for. So, you know, different vendors use different approaches today to, you know, provide that indexing into the maps that they generate. Um, and it creates a lot of havoc for people to design applications um, to not have a consistent approach, a, a consistent method for indexing. It's kind of like the Dewey Decimal System for libraries, you know, um, to be able to find a book. Um, it's the same value. If every library had its own different indexing methodology, it would make it really hard for people to go from one library to another and be able to locate books. So um, that's kind of the goal of the foundation, I think, in many ways, is to create these sort of standards. And there's a nice integration of other um, standardization groups, which are also in their own right, trying to create some uniformity with development. For example, if we look at the AR headset market, there's already silos, right? We've got the HoloLens silo, we've got the Magic Leap silo, we've got the Android-based AR headset silos. Um, Apple, when it comes out with its product, will create another silo. Um, but maybe as developers, we want to be able to build applications that run across these devices and not have to develop them over and over and over again. Multi-platform deployment of business logic and code and graphics has been something that's been a passion of mine since the 80s. 
And today, without tools that can do that, like Unity, we wouldn't see as many, as much proliferation of solutions for business or consumer. Um, and so, this is very, very important um, as we move forward to have that. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And you know, you mentioned Unity, and and Tony, uh, Tony Parisi has been working in kind of the web AR space um, forever as well, yeah. and and really, you know, pushing this forward. And he's actually going to be a, a guest on the show as well. So. It's, you know, this is not an overnight fix and it's not something that uh, that is going to happen overnight. But I think, you know, from a business standpoint, if, if I'm a, a business owner and, you know, we're talking about open AR cloud and we're talking about, you know, edge computing, what does this mean to a typical business? Because, you know, as we're doing this interview, it keeps cutting out a little bit. And, you know, let, let's just kind of unpack this. If we can't figure out how to make a podcast record smoothly why are we even trying to make glasses that compute, you know, in three dimensions? Because if we can't figure out the simplicity of a podcast stream, you know, and, and this is this is what people are asking me, you know, why would I get into AR when I, you know, I'm just starting to embrace mobile mobile apps? So, you know, maybe you can speak to the the transformative power of these technologies as as a business owner, as a business person. Well, I mean, there's, there's two parts to this, right? So we've been in the early days with AR devices and the challenge has been that if you are tied to a particular vendor um, and the vendor's ecosystem, then it becomes really, really hard for you to take all of the investment you've made in building business use cases and moving them to devices which might be better suited to the use case. Um, for example, the HoloLens, when people started building applications with HoloLens to do things like remote maintenance or, um, you know, remote support. Um, the same applications become very difficult to move to a lighter weight device that's perhaps more durable um, and better used in an industrial environment like say a Realware HMT1 um, or something that's lighter weight, you know, that, that fits and is more comfortable to wear on the head for an extended period of time. And so it's super important that we have some standards that allow us to take the the core business logic and the content and move the, those projects across to different um, tangible devices so that the businesses can adapt um, and, and utilize them, not only for the use case um, that they're building, you know, so it's better for that use case, but also to look at it from a CapEx perspective. Um, because, you know, the HoloLens is a great product, but it's $3,500 US. And companies can't afford to necessarily um, give each and every employee um, even with the great ROI that might be provided, um, they may be able to capitalize that much expenditure. So it becomes very valuable to be able to move your your um, software um, ecosystem to a device that might be um, slightly less functional, but also a lot more affordable and deployable across a wider range of people. It's it's interesting that you you touch on that because you know about a year ago now i think uh, microsoft moved the hololens out of their devices division and into their azure or cloud-based computing division and i thought that was a really smart move because once they realized the power of this of this technology being able to synchronize that with the business um, systems that are already in place is vital so being able to say okay you're using a hololens and that's great for you know these really high-end jobs but that same information that you're using can be used with a, a smartphone now and with uh, you know another pair of glasses. And, and I think 
creating that standard where it can be used across anything is is absolutely essential. And you know, as a company, our our company Metaverse, we've always taken a, a completely agnostic uh, approach to everything, where we said, okay, it doesn't matter, you know, what headset or you know what technology. It's what is the problem you're solving? How do we take this technology that is right for you and you know deploy it, but also in a way that future proofs what you're working on because you know let's be honest this stuff is changing weekly and so you know a company and that's another question that keeps coming up from from companies is that you know how do i even get started so you know what would your recommendation to a company that's looking at you know maybe it's an enterprise company and they're going well we have a factory and you know i i see these these uh you know case studies from boeing how you know they're seeing 36 percent uh you know increase in efficiency What's the first step for people, in your opinion, for these companies to kind of just get into it? So, you know, today we see a lot of companies that are doing pilots, right? Improving the ROI on enterprise business to, uh, to business solutions, um, specifically looking at situations, you know, the sort of remote um, assistance is a really common one, right? It's almost the common denominator use case now because the return investment is very clearly measurable. You know that you um, can save money not having to fly an expert, you know, from one physical location to another, same reason that we use Skype or WebEx or Zoom or whatever. Um, and, uh, but we wanna extend that communication with augmented um, content presentation, annotation, information display so that the over the shoulder support is really, feels like they're literally over the shoulder. Um, those kind of use cases that are are very um, straightforward ways for businesses which are in the service industry or have technically complex products that need to be serviced um, to invest in, in XR. Um, and I think that uh, most of the devices that are in the market today are um, capable of delivering really you know uh, good value in that. But there will always be a need for use case specific implementations on the device, depending on your context. If you're in a hazardous environment, if you're, you know, sitting, um, you know, at a desk with large complex machinery right next to you, different needs. Um, sometimes you need something that can um, work in different lighting conditions, um, very bright light versus, you know, very low light conditions. Maybe you need a headset that can have a flashlight turned on so that it can illuminate the area um, as you're looking at objects in a, in a basement or underground locations, so. Or night vision for the US military. Yeah, if you look at, exactly, look at the HoloLens 2 in the military version adaptation, and there's a number of other companies that have made a good living building XR headwear worn devices specifically for the military. I mentioned the flight mask um, for FedEx that ODG had built. Um, uh, you know, there's just, I don't think there, for business, there's going to be um, a single device that is going to serve um, all the business use cases. So you have to look at the ones that are, look, what I tell a lot of businesses to do is start to evaluate the environments in which the devices need to be used before you start building the software because the software is gonna be a lot easier um, to, to design um, than trying to pick different hardware. And you know I mean? Like for example, um, do you need to be able to use the device indoor or and outdoors? Do you need to be able to use it in different lighting conditions? Um, does the device need to be shared by multiple people because you can't afford to put one device into the hand of each individual user? Um, what kind of mobile device management requirements do you have? Um, what kind of security requirements do you have? So all of these have to be um, sort of thought about 
um, before you start picking hardware. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times I see people pick the device first without really thinking all of those out. And then they find that they're kind of in a, a rut now because they've, you know, now they're stuck with a specific software development platform building for specific device capabilities and they can't really build the solution they need. It's not practical. Um, I wouldn't, for example, I mean, they, all these devices have great value. I work with all of them universally, but I wouldn't, you know, um, take the magic leap and build, you know, um, a solution for it that requires being used in, um, you know, a, a large open factory space because it's just not designed for that. Why is that? Because it's um, both the combination of the way it displays things, the lighting conditions okay. under which it can um, work, and also the, the sensor arrays that are on board. Um, you know, it can only scan a certain distance in front of you. So if you're trying to do things and use, um, you know, you're in a giant room, you know, a cavernous room, um, it won't be able to even find the walls that are, you know, in front of you because they're too far away. Um, you'll have to walk around the area and map it manually, and it'll take a really long time to do that. Um, and, and then also the environment, for example, uh, you have like a lot of reflective white surfaces, or you have, um, you know, glass windows or things that are less featured um, oriented to differentiate content um, of the real world around you. It's really hard to map. Um, the Magic Leap isn't going to be that great at some of those environments, at least not currently. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they all all of these devices have their their pros and cons. The <clears throat> the Hololens one, you know, for me, after about five minutes of wearing it, I got a headache just because of the weight distribution of it. Yeah. And you know, in the second one, they've they fixed that and they've addressed it. But uh, you know, they all have their their limitations. I think one of the one of the things that's you know across all the conversation that I've been having is security. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned device management security. Uh, shared by multiple people, and I think you know one of the things that uh, came up in one of the conversations is you know eye tracking is going to be you know more and more prevalent in these headsets, yep. and once we have you know really accurate eye tracking and you know head head motion tracking because of the devices on our head, you'll be able to use things like gait, uh, retinal scanning, um, you know heart rate. These are you know kind of different biometric markers to enable security at a different level so yeah absolutely and magically has some great advances in that um as does the hololens too um and you're going to see you know more and more use of the value of that uh, as we move forward to enable um the sort of uh, contextualized and personalized information display for the user um automatically recognizing by a mixture of biometrics like you said um it's really about reducing the friction on the user experience right so that they can have an easier way to just pop the headset on and um, maybe even have a, a, a general profile that's stored in the cloud someplace that can be brought down to that particular device so that it's not just this exact device that they have to use, but it's a device of that type. Yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the things that uh, we're working on, it's a you know a project, I can't talk about the details, but it's um, being able to use it as a medical um, uh, diagnostic device so being able to send this device out to remote areas that you know physicians uh, it's either very expensive or, or not uh, possible to get physicians out to these you know remote areas being able to send this device out capture the medical data from it and then you know either transmit it through the cloud or send the device back but you know how do you secure that data how does it how is it transferred um, you know how do you make sure that the individual using it like you said, you know, the onboarding is a, is a hard thing. If I put on a HoloLens and it doesn't have Wi-Fi, 
I got, you know, 10 minutes of trying to mess around just to get the Wi-Fi working. So being able to take out those onboarding um, challenges is really key. And I, I think, you know, we've only scratched the surface as an industry on what eye tracking can even do with foveated rendering, yep. with, you know, being able to uh, identify and, and, you know, approve people. It, it's incredible what, what this technology is going to be able to do. Yeah, you know, for businesses, um, maybe even as much or more so than consumers, it's going to be important that the learning curve, um, the friction points that are involved in getting somebody on, uh, be able to put the, the glasses on and, and start making um, practical use out of them needs to get, you know, less and less. Um, what we're learning about doing, what we're learning when we do this for businesses will be readily applicable to consumer grade devices that will come to market over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, today, you know, the, the, the most powerful devices are these sort of all-in-one devices like the HoloLens 2 and Magically Creator 1. Um, but as we move over the next 12 to 18 months, you're gonna see more and more of the uh, tethered devices where they're leveraging um, a smartphone and um, its compute capabilities and its sensors um, with lightweight devices. And um, the the flow with which those kinds of experiences have um, happens needs to be super, super easy. Um, I, ideally, I just want to be able to put the glasses on and and have it start to do things for me without my having to be trained, you know, in a, in a special class, right? Um, and I, right now it's not there yet. We're still finding that we have to educate people on the use of the device in a generic way. Then we have to educate them on the applications and every application has a completely different approach to the way it spatially displays stuff. So it's all, every time it's a massive learning curve. That's gonna go away in the future, but it's gonna take us a few years to, it's gonna take us longer to solve the inversion of the ecosystem issue where we go from a app first mentality to a people first mentality in the way that we design software. Um, then it's gonna take us to actually get to a consumer grade device. So, in your opinion, I mean, you're right in the thick of this thing. You've created 200 different apps around the world. You you work for one of the world's largest telcos. Um, in your opinion, you know, you mentioned 12 to 18 months. When do you think consumer-based AR is going to start? Like, like when I say start, I mean, you know, hit the market where people are actually buying them, not, not magically being sold at AT&T stores because, you know, that's great. But I, I bet you they've bought about 10 of them or sold about 10 of them. But when, you know, when do you think this is going to start to kick off, you know, and kind of, I know, you know, the, the big kind of question mark is Apple and what they're going to do. But, you know, maybe, you know, can you speak to what you think your timeline is around consumer adoption and, and kind of the, the, where we're looking for enterprise versus consumer in the next 10 years or I think, five? Or so I think in terms of the device, the use cases will, um, I think, as I said, the, 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 the transition now is going to go from the, the all-in-one devices to the tethered devices. So there's a few companies like uh, uh, DreamWorld, Unreal, Rokid, which are coming to the market with really uh, high-quality tethered solutions where you plug your phone in um, and leverage that compute. Um, and that allow the price point for the headsets to go, go down significantly from where they are today. You know, from under a thousand, you know, to under a thousand dollars, maybe well under a thousand dollars, and still have a lot of the functionality needed for business use cases, um, and and that will be the adoption. It will be it won't be for consumer use cases. It will still be for business 
or or as I like to say, time derivative um, B2B to C type use cases. Like I'm gonna go to a sporting event, I'm gonna put the glasses on, I'm gonna wear them for two hours. I'm gonna go um, walk around a city center on vacation, I'm gonna wear the glasses for a few hours. I'm gonna go to a museum, I'm gonna wear the glasses for a couple hours. So these time derivative use cases will become very um, valuable in driving adoption rates on the devices themselves. In the, it, and I see that happening in the next six to 12 months. By the, I, I project that by the end of next year, Apple will make its entry into the ecosystem and that will be much more of a straight out consumer play. I don't think they're gonna look at it as a solution for businesses at all. I think they're gonna go to the opposite end, which is what Microsoft has done. The Microsoft said, we're gonna own the business, you know, the enterprise space. Um, Apple, I think will go, and we're gonna own the consumer space and we'll let everybody else play in this sort of middle. Um, well, I think if, the, if it's anything like the iPad, they came out with a consumer device that had far reaching capabilities in enterprise and business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I absolutely think there's a, um, what you can use it for and what they position it for initially. Right. Um, so absolutely there'll be a lot of, of, uh, envelope pushing in terms of the categories of use cases that will be built for the device when it comes out. Um, I just think that right now we're in this sort of transition from the all in one to the tethered. Um, and then Apple will be playing in the tethered. I mean, from my perspective, it's an ecosystem of devices that work together, right? So you've got your Apple Watch, you've got your next generation AirPods, you've got your 5G capable um, Apple iPhone, and then you've got their, their glasses. And I think that's gonna be the ecosystem that we see when it comes to the glasses uh, and bring it to market. Um, my gut tells me as a developer who's been doing work with Apple since 84, that they're gonna launch at the WWDC um, to get the developer community sort of you know ramped up and building use cases and applications on top of it, um, I just have a hard time imagining them waiting until 2021 to do it. Really, because uh, my original uh, prediction was 2020, uh, mid 2021 when they announced, and then kind of 2022 when they yeah. launched. So you've kind of hyper accelerated my <laughs> ah oh crap. Anybody who's listening, you better hustle now because once that hits, the world gets crazy. I, I'm an optimist, and I and I have to admit that within um, my group of colleagues, I'm, I'm as optimistic as they comes when it, when it comes to the devices. Um, and I know I'm pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, there's also we'll, we'll, we will. There's also some convergence going on, right, with the rollout of 5G um, starting now. Um, yeah. You know, granted, it's early days. Um, you know, if you stand in the right corner of the park in Chicago, you'll get 5G radio on Verizon. Um, so it's still very limited. It, you know, you have to be in the you know the Mall of America in Minneapolis to get 5G. Uh, I think you have yep. to be in the Verizon store itself, actually. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, so there's limited access right now. But as we move forward, um, and, and 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 all the telcos get to play. Uh, you'll see more prevalence in there. And I think Apple's waiting because they're not in a hurry. They got to wait till there's a market. <clears throat> uh, yeah. And I think they did a really good job with introducing ARKit um, with the acquisition of Matayo and then turning that into ARKit. And, you know, I, I often say this in my talks is that ARKit is like the training wheels of spatial computing. It's, you know, here's, here's a device in everybody's pocket. It's fully AR enabled. Go out and build something cool. Maybe you know, maybe it's a game. Maybe it's a an experience. Maybe it's a marketing thing. But you have the power of the future technology in your hands. Start programming for it. So when the glasses come, 
you're already able to program for these things. That's right. That's exactly correct. And you know, we're, we we moved beyond the you know the preponderance of measuring apps, you know, built on top of ARKit to like really seeing a breadth of use cases and a lot more integration of AI on uh, in the camera vision processing. And so we're starting to get not just spatial mapping, but semantical mapping of the real world done. And that's going to be really exciting because that really changes the game. That's why the work that we're doing at the OpenAR Cloud Foundation is so important because when you have some standardized resources that you can tap into, you know, no no matter how big companies are, no, no one company is going to be able to um, own a, the creation of all maps. So there's going to be a need to share and collaborate and work together um, to deploy as a layer of services what these maps have been built to um, to contain. And uh, absolutely, on top of that, we need to understand what it is that we've mapped. Um, we understand the details, the nuances of things like the type of material that things are made out of. It's, this is concrete. This is plastic. This is wood. This is rubber, um, because that's going to start to become more tangentially important to the kinds of applications that we see built. It's crazy. Crazy the stuff that's going to come through the camera. And I want to ask you one final question. What do you see as the future of VR, AR, MR, XR as it pertains to business? I, I think that transformatively, all the software that we're used to operating on a desktop computer will have to get redesigned to be uh, spatial computing aware. We're going to think differently. Um, the vision that um, that Meta had about re getting rid of the desktop display and turning it into a yep. virtualized space is going to be part of the world that we move to, and um, and so software will have to be rethought and redesigned and re-engineered for that kind of paradigm. Incredible. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for for taking the time. It's been really a, a, an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast was another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing businesses across every industry. You can learn more about Deutsche Telekom by visiting telekom.com. That's T-E-L-E-K-O-M.com. And you can also learn more about OpenAR Cloud by visiting openarcloud.org, O-P-E-N-A-R-C-L-O-U-D.org. Thank you so much, Terry, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you.